0: This is Jude Null, and you're listening to the Norse Up Podcast, a production for NKU by NKU, highlighting the expertise of our university's faculty and staff. This week, we're in conversation with Dr. Ernest Smith, professor of English, to celebrate National Poetry Month. Dr. Smith received his Ph.D. from New York University in 1987 and specializes in 20th and 21st century poetry culture in the United States. Ernest, welcome to the podcast.
1: Nice to be here. Thank you.
0: Uh, To start off, let's discuss how you initially decided to study poetry. Uh, You studied English at Wright State during the late 70s. And when and why did you decide to actually focus on poetry?
1: Well, it goes back much earlier than my (laughs) educational career. Um, I'm a boomer. So you may have heard of this phenomenon known as the singer songwriter. Yeah. Uh, in the '60s, <laughs> we actually have a course offered by a colleague on Bob Dylan. And awesome. um, some at some point in the late '60s, I heard a song on the radio by The Birds, "Mr. Tambourine yeah. Man." I was quite taken by the words. I didn't know who Bob Dylan was at that point, but I was so taken by the language. And back in those days, you could listen to AM Top Forty radio and hear all sorts of really good, interesting Mm -hmm. music. I started transcribing song lyrics into a little notebook that I carried around with me. And that was sort of my inspiration. Mm -hmm. If I was bored at school, I'd open the notebook and read some song lyrics. Um, If I was down in the dumps, I might open the notebook and read some song lyrics. And this was maybe before the days of buying records with the lyrics inscribed inside. But even after that, I would copy out the lyrics, and they would resonate for me in Mm -hmm. my head. So when I got to college, I gravitated toward English and poetry. But you mentioned New York University. I went there in 1980. And my first semester there, I sort of by accident fell into a course that was taught by two poets. One from Russia, one from Trinidad, Tobago. Uh, Within the next 10 years, each of those poets would go on to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. At that time, I did not know who Joseph Brodsky and Derek Walcott were, but I did quickly find out that their Friday afternoon class was a life-changing event for me. Um, I shifted my focus from studying the American Renaissance, where I was looking at poetry, um, poetry by great writers like Walt Whitman, who remains mm-hmm. a personal favorite. But I cast my allegiance with poetry mainly because
0: of those inspirational teachers. Right. And never looked back. And uh, what was the experience? I talked a little bit about your undergrad, but like moving on to getting your PhD, like what inspired you to take it that one step further?
1: It was, again, that class primarily, but I began studying with some other professors. And I have to say, when you're in a place like New York City and you can choose which nationally known poet you want to do a (laughs) workshop with. um, So in addition to academic pursuits, I started taking poetry writing workshops Mm -hmm. in and around the city with some really talented, well-known writers and got a lot of encouragement from them and um, went on to write a dissertation on an American poet, specialize in American poetry, and published my first book on an American poet. So it was really that transformational period of being in graduate school, meeting some inspiring professors and some inspiring writers outside of the academy that drove me deeper into the world of poetry.
0: And from there, how did you end up arriving at NKU, and what about the school interested you?
1: I've taught at several different places. This is, I think I've lost track, but I think this is year 37. So I went from New York City to Boston. Then I went to Orlando for 19 years. And then I came here because of a professional opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, I I do believe in relocating when opportunities present themselves to you. And um, I've enjoyed my 13 years here greatly.
0: Yeah. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, it is the start of National Poetry Month, and if you were to recommend an entry point into appreciating poetry to someone who has maybe little experience reading or writing it, what would it be? Go online and start reading what is
1: being written right now. What are poets saying right now? Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't matter whether it's a famous writer or an unknown writer. Find something that speaks to you. Um, I'm very big on the democratic power of poetry. I don't think it matters at all whether poetry is quote-unquote good. Who are the arbiters of what Mm -hmm. constitutes good poetry? If you want to find a way to express yourself, find your own voice by responding to other voices that you will discover. I don't think you have to go to what we call the literary canon or read quote-unquote great poetry to be inspired. Um, I used to coach youth sports. Um, Every year across the country, thousands and thousands of kids play soccer. Thousands and thousands of kids participate in dance competitions. They find outlets for their creativity. Mm -hmm. We were looking at Sylvia Plath in class this morning, and I quoted something that she said to the class. The greatest impediment to creativity is self-doubt. Believe in yourself. Go find a poet who speaks to you. If you want me to recommend some, sure. But I'd rather you find a voice on your own that speaks to you. Maybe it's not a poet. Maybe like for me as a young person, it's a singer-songwriter. Right. Maybe it's someone who uses language in an interesting way. So fall in love with language. You probably are already in love with language. Mm-hmm. Someone said of arguably our greatest 20th century poet, Wallace Stevens, who uses a lot of nonsense words in his poetry, He never lost his boyhood love of funny-sounding words. Mm -hmm. And those make their way into his poetry on a regular basis. Now, for other people, and I would include myself in terms of my own scholarly interest, it might be that you look for poetry for what I'm going to call the news. Um, Famous poet William Carlos Williams, in 1923, he ended one of his poems by talking about America and our current state of affairs he said no one to witness and adjust no one to drive the car 40 years later during the year of his death he won the pulitzer prize for poetry and in that year he published a poem that said it is difficult to get the news from poems yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there wow In both instances, I think Williams is talking about the power of poetry to engage history, to engage culture in ways that historians, journalists, academics, politicians cannot. I would extend that to the arts in general. Poetry and by extension, all of the arts have a way of responding to our culture that is unique and different, and in some, time, in some instances, I would argue, much more accurate than the historical representation of history and culture. Would you mind another quick example? Oh, sure. This week, we studied the great African-American poet Robert Hayden, who served as poetry consultant to the Library of Congress. Hayden wrote a poem called Night, Death, Mississippi, which is spoken in the voice of an elder Southern white Klansman a kkk the poem spoken in this old racist voice is about the joys that the man took in reminiscing about lynchings that he participated in. Mm. It's a violent poem, it's a difficult read. But Hayden gives us a glimpse into the psychology, the inner mind workings of an old Southern racist in a way that, let's say a journalist went and interviewed this man. He wouldn't be able to get what Hayden gives us in the poem, Night, Death, Mississippi. So again, poetry's ability to put us in a situation, to allow us to inhabit, in this case, a very ugly consciousness, but to help us perhaps understand some episodes in our history and culture that we might otherwise ignore.
0: You've talked a little bit about getting that initial spark of interest in poetry or artwork, and you've also talked about your classes that you teach here at NKU. What can you gain from a formal education in poetry beyond that initial interest? What, what does a college education in English or poetry give you that you might not get elsewhere?
1: It gives you something to live with mm-hmm. for, for the rest of your life. It gives you what we might call touchstones in moments of difficulty, moments of joy, moments of crisis. I'll give you another quick story about a 90 year old woman. She was a family friend, never went to college, but I met her in the mountains of West Virginia. The first time I met her, she wanted to recite a poem for me. She found out that I teach poetry and she said, I want to recite john milton's famous sonnet when i consider how my light is spent 90 years old blind recited the poem from memory wow she proceeded to tell me that she had been made to memorize the poem as a grade school student but the poem resonated with her it stayed with her through the years at different points in her life it meant different things Mm -hmm. to her and she had recently gone blind and the poem came back to her in new ways now that said something different. It had spoken her at various points of her life, but because she had lived with that work, it resonated for her across the years at different junctures. I'm always talking to my students about living with literature. Allow it to haunt you, Mm -hmm. especially poetry. Allow those memorable lines to stick in your brain and maybe Come to you at inopportune or opportune times and speak to you. So, I think, in short, what you can gain from studying literature at the college level, even if you don't take a degree, is something that will speak to you, something you can call upon. How many people want poetry recited at their funerals? Quite a few. Um, How many people? Want to recite poetry in the living room with family more than you would imagine. Mm -hmm. Um, Our young people are writing poetry all the time. What we have to do is give them the confidence to share it with one another, with us, just as a way of expressing yourself. There's no point in critiquing whether it's good or bad. As I said before, who's the arbiter anyway? Um, So find a voice, utilize it, have faith in it and live with it and allow poetry to resonate for
0: you through your lifetime. It'll work wonders. And you've talked about your uh, teaching experience here a little bit. What courses or poets do you most enjoy teaching? I'm a list maker. I once made a list (laughs) of
1: 40 poets and handed around like a business card. Here are what I call my top shelf poets, like the bourbons you have to climb the ladder (laughs) to get, the very best ones. Um, The list is... Probably too long to go through here, and it's always fluctuating a little bit, and I'm always trying to add new people to that list. But I will say I began by studying modernist American poetry, which is the first half of the 20th century. But around 1990, early in my career, I began paying more attention to the poets who wrote in the middle of the 20th century, in what I call the post war or the contemporary period, especially the poets. Of the 50s and 60s. And I was very attracted to the way they engage history and culture, the way they write about what's going on politically in the post nuclear age. There's a greater directness in their work than in the poetry of most of the first half of the 20th century American poets. They write about issues like what Hayden wrote about in Night Death Mississippi. They write about In the case of Sylvia Plath, who we were doing in class this morning, they write about the Holocaust, which they see as the great metaphor for human suffering in the 20th century. Or they write about family conflict. Uh, Most of these poets underwent some sort of therapy in the 50s, and they found that they could take what they discovered about themselves with their therapist and put that on the page and create magnificent art. So I enjoy... um, the poets of the 50s and 60s, all the poets across the 20th century into the 21st century. I'm an Americanist, I tend to focus on American poetry, but there are great world poets as well, and I'm always talking with colleagues about who are those top shelf poets, and a couple of weeks ago someone said, surely Rilke's on that list. Oh
0: yes, (laughs) Rilke's
1: on that list, absolutely.
0: And uh, outside of your own classes, what else does NKU have to offer in the way of poetry studies?
1: One thing I really celebrate about NKU is the diversity of our student Mm -hmm. demographic. We have a reading series, a Loch Norse reading series, about three different events per semester. We usually have a guest reader, but then we have an open mic. And it's a very well attended event where our students, not just English majors, but from across the university, feel free to share their own work with one another. I think that the range of the types of students we have here, everything from first-generation students to students whose families, parents probably attended college, maybe even grandparents, we have a very strong LGBTQ plus community, and those writers are very brave in what they get up and share at these open mics. So in the classroom and outside of the classroom, I think the one element of NKU that I celebrate the most is simply the diversity and range of our students. They bring incredible backgrounds and incredible range of feeling into the classroom. We deal with personal trauma. Um, We laugh in the classroom. Uh, I had tears in my eyes the other day in the classroom based upon reading a passage aloud. Um, I could see the clack. Some members of the class were tearing up. It's that sense of community that poetry allows us to share openly feelings, responses, emotions, joy, trauma that makes higher education really special, and especially at a place like this.
0: And before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to share or talk about? One more story. Sure. I used to
1: volunteer in the grade schools and go in and run a poetry workshop for some multi-grade lower level Montessori grades, grades three through six. So we went in, ran a poetry workshop one year. We read some poems. We spoke them aloud as a group. We worked on writing our own poems. We looked at a short poem by Robert Frost about a dog. We wrote poems about our pets. I went back to the same classroom A year later, a lot of the same students, and they said, can we again recite that poem that begins, life, friends, is boring, we must never say so? (laughs) It's a sonnet by John Berryman, uh, not a sonnet, but a dream song, close to a sonnet, 16-line poem. He published it in the 1960s. Students, grades three through six, remembered that poem a year later. It said something to them. It resonated in a way that stayed with them. It astonished me. They knew the poem a year later. We started reciting it, and they picked right up and knew many of the lines. Uh, I'll never forget that because it was a powerful testimony to the power of poetry, even in the lives of people that young. Unforgettable.
0: Thank you. And this has been Dr. Ernest Smith, professor of English. And as always, you're listening to the Norse Up podcast. You can check us out Fridays on Spotify, Apple Music, or nku.edu, wherever you get your podcasts. If we're not on there, let us know and we'll get on there. As always, remember to Norse Up.